Clubhouse. Do you love Christmas? Do you love Christmas movies? Do you wish it was Christmas time year round? Well, do we have a podcast for you? Welcome to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Whoa, 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 Clark. We're keeping this show family-friendly. Where's the Tylenol? Welcome to week six of the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. This week we're talking about Miracle on 34th Street. It was a screenplay by George Seaton based on a story by Valentine Davies, and it was directed by George Seaton. This movie actually had several names. It had several working titles. We'll throw one out that you know. I saw one that was called Big Heart. That was the very original working title. That was when Maureen O'Hara gets the script. It's actually called The Big Heart. It was really was going to be called Christmas Miracle on 34th Street. Do you know why they changed it? No. The studio head at Fox decided that more people go see movies in the summertime, and so he took this Christmas movie hacked off christmas from the title they marketed this movie as a rom-com and they released it in may of 1947 Whoa. yeah 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 and 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 went out of their way to hide all of the Christmassy aspects of it. Describe the poster you know for this movie. When you think of this film, what's the scene you have? What's like the cover art you have in your head? I think it's just uh, Maureen O'Hara and John Payne like kind of looking at each other. They're a little parent trappy, actually. And um, and then just like a little girl and an old man in the background. But that's it. That's what they released as the theatrical the poster. The one that is more popular now, it's the cover art. If you go to Disney Plus to go actually watch this movie, it, it's little Susan sitting on Chris Kringle's lap, and he's looking very Santa-y. And it's clearly like, oh, this dude looks just like Santa Claus. And they're at the forefront. That's the current modern art for this. This movie is actually currently available as of this recording and release date uh, on Disney+. Plus. Go take a look. The original theatrical art, because it was a rom-com, was... Doris and Fred well in the front and then little Susan and Chris Kringle in a little circle in the way in the back and he's wearing a suit. He's not. Yeah, he's he wearing doesn't like, look at like Chris Kringle. It looks like it could be like a grandpa or something. It looks very much just like a grandpa from the country with his with a beard. Yeah. Or yeah. like Kenny Rogers in, you know, before the plastic <laughs> sure. surgery. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah. So yeah, very interesting how they did their whole approach to this. They released it May 2nd, 1947. So this was actually a summer blockbuster as it turned out. That is so weird. Weird. Wait, I have to tell you this. Oh my gosh. Okay, do you know why I said Parent Trap? Okay, I thought this and I didn't even know I knew this in my head. I said Parent Trap because Maureen O'Hare plays the mom on Parent Trap in the original. Really? I didn't even know that. I didn't even know that. But when I look at, I'm looking, uh, yeah. yeah. So that's why she looks so darn familiar in profile with the red hair and everything that they have on the, on the box. Because that's the one I know her from. That is pretty crazy. I see. I didn't know that. She was quite the dame. You know, yeah. I, 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 well, you know, I, I know it, it sounds so weird. Again, this all goes back to my growing up, never watching black and white movies. Right. So there's a whole era of Hollywood where I only tangentially or because they're super pop culture icons. I know 
stars and starlets from the golden age of Hollywood. Your Mae Wests, your... God, I, I don't even know. I can't even Doris come up the door. Yeah, well, see, I don't even know if I would know her off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, so there's like a very, like, scant So I go, I go and watch... Betty Davis is one. I go and watch these movies. Unless it was parodied as a Flintstones character in Bedrock, I have no context for so many of these actresses from this age. So I see them I'm like, oh my God, hubba hubba, you know? <laughs> so you know what I do, though? It's not because, like, I was, like, such a little cinephile and wanted to, like, seek out these black and white movies. It was because in the little tiny town that I grew up in in Massachusetts, the only place to get a, a video rental was the library. And the library had all these black and white movies. So I've seen the, the original Parent Trap and Miracle on 34th Street and all the good oldies because that's what was available to me. That was it. That was my choices. Let's see. Well, there you go. Uh, uh, Maureen O'Hara would uh, would turn 101 years old this year if she was still alive. She actually lived here. She actually passed away in 2015. Good Um, on her. Yeah. We found out that a lot of these actors from this this age actually lived quite long. Didn't we figure that out with... Oh, It's a Wonderful Life. Yes. Yeah, It's a Wonderful Life. People were still around. They were still giving interviews. I mean, uh, Maureen O'Hara released her biography or autobiography, I think it was in 2004. And there's a bunch of quotes that people cite and and will be citing later on is trivia from this movie that actually come from her recollections of her shoot this woman born in 1920 was writing an autobiography in the 2000s that's crazy i love that she was like you know what it's about time i need to get around to that (laughs) time to spill time to spill some tea so for those people who haven't watched mike can you give them a little summary of what this one's about uh sure a man uh, named chris kringle he finds himself in the situation of being hired by Doris Walker, who's played by Maureen O'Hara, as a Macy's in-store Santa, which he's more than happy to do because he's Chris Kringle. He is Santa Claus. And she doesn't believe it. Her daughter, Susan, who is just eight years old, six, seven, eight years old, uh, played by Natalie Wood, an eight-year-old Natalie Wood, has been brought up by her mother to not believe in fairy tales or things like Santa Claus. So the movie is basically, is Chris Kringle Santa Claus. And it actually kind of turns into a little bit of a courtroom drama at the end. Yeah, a little bit, a lot bit. Please, that's the whole thing. I'd say it's probably the entire back third of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, is, is, a, is literally a trial to determine whether or not Chris Kringle is crazy or is Santa Claus. And uh, it's magical, and you should definitely go and check it out because I don't want to spoil it for you. Uh, but really, the the movie is about more than that, though, right? The movie is about belief and faith even as adults how do we justify the things that don't make sense is there room for things in our life that don't make sense yes <laughs> well no well, well so we've seen movies try so far even in our first five weeks we've seen movies try polar express last week very much tried to make this argument tried to do this but i think failed largely at it i think it had i think it was a little bit disingenuous in its attempt and i think this movie is far more successful so let me play you this clip and then uh and i promise you if you believe in me and have faith in me everything you don't have any faith in me do you It's not a question of faith, it's just common sense. Faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. Don't you see? It's not just Chris that's on trial, it's everything he stands for. It's kindness and joy and love and all the other intangibles. Oh, Fred, you're talking like a child. You're living in a realistic world, and those lovely intangibles of yours are attractive but not worth very much. You don't get ahead that way. That all depends on what you call getting ahead. Evidently, you and I have different definitions. 
These last few days, we've talked about some wonderful plans. And then you go on an idealistic binge. You give up your job, you throw away all your security, and then you expect me to be happy about it. Yes, I guess I expected too much. Look, Doris, someday you're going to find out that your way of facing this realistic world just doesn't work. And when you do, don't overlook those lovely intangibles. You'll discover they're the only things that are worthwhile. Are those lovely intangibles, when you get down to it, the most important things in life? Absolutely. I can't even believe that she lumps in things like, you know, whether or not you believe in, you know, something you can't see in with like love and kindness and stuff like that. Like she doesn't think that those things are important. That's kind of wild. I know people like this. I know people that feel this way and particularly during the Christmas season get their backs up against the wall and and feel that they have to make this point over and over again that the uh, that this almost vulcan way of life this logical existence is the only kind of existence that matters and i always think to myself i mean they're entitled to feel how they want to feel and doris is entitled to how feel how she wants to feel i feel like you're you miss out on so much of the wonderful things about life if that's how you go through life i agree and i very much understand and appreciate that they explain that Doris's position really is rooted in the nugget of not wanting her to believe in fairy tales. Now, being a single mom, a divorcee, this is in the 1947, this is one of those situations where I understand she doesn't want to teach her daughter to rely on Prince Charming coming to sweep her off her feet. I think that is actually a very progressive message to send to women Throughout, I mean, even the grown women watching this would be like, wait a minute, much less the girls watching this. So I, I appreciate the like, don't put all your eggs in this fairy tale basket. I'm just sad that she 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 made her circle too large as to what not to believe in. I think self-sufficiency and stuff is a great message to explain to girls. But it's not so you can't have love and kindness and imagination. Like, no, 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 no. Now you've gone too far. Well, there's that scene, right, where she's talking about why she's raised Susan to not believe in things like fairy tales, but quickly, mm-hmm. it quickly turns to her talking about herself. You know, she, she's essentially, it's three seconds away from, and that no good ex-husband of mine. And Fred, call, yeah. and Fred calls her on it and says, you know, we worked, we had started out talking about Susan, and now we're talking about you, which right. is a little brusque. And Fred is, Fred is a little aggressive, uh, more, a little more than a little aggressive at the start of this movie. I actually end up liking him a lot. I, I, I feel that I actually share his opinions on Chris and Christmas and what this is all about and why it's worth fighting for. I'll say he's assertive. I don't think he's aggressive, but I think he does question her and he doesn't let her go when she just says, let me parent however I want to parent. He doesn't just turn tail and run. He's like, you know what? But I don't think that's right. And let me tell you why. And so, I mean, I appreciate that. I think that's a very now conversation. I think so. I I was actually referring more to the fact that he's having his neighbors who he doesn't know (laughs) daughter over into his apartment for lengths of time, taking her to the zoo, even with the date. Well, now here's the thing, though. I don't want to make that weird because that makes me think of of our janitor friend i i don't want to take a grown man showing interest in children as to be an automatic perv move well no 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 but alfred isn't going into people's homes and taking those children to his home alone 
uh, when he doesn't know the parents and doing things like watching the parade or going to the but zoo with them. it was out of the good of his heart. It wasn't out of being gross. Sure. I'm just saying. I find that. <laughs> I, that's a, and, and he's doing it blatantly and doesn't hide the fact he's doing it blatantly to meet the mother. He's transparently going through the child to get with the mother. I think that's a little aggressive and a little icky. I, I guess they play for laughs when she says, did I ask it right? When she, the whole setup about coming over for dinner and stuff. I know it's very cute and whatever, but I, I don't know. It, it, this is, this is, the the 2021 lens looking backwards kind of through times i don't think if that came out today people would be cool with that i, I actually think it's exactly what a sitcom would write that's the thing is that i think that's exactly not in 2021 i don't think in 2021 i think maybe maybe as recently as 2000 like 15 16 but i don't think in 2021 you're getting the storyline i don't know i mean it just feels like the puppy at the at the dog park like it doesn't feel like all that much different you know like luring a kid or luring a you know, someone over because, you know, you're trying to meet the mom. Like, I think it's all very standard. In the end, I, I actually don't get very hung up on it because because I come around to his point of view. And you mentioned that she's a divorcee. And in, this is 1947. That's kind of a risque uh, topic. Really, that's a very. risque. That's a risque topic. Really, to the eighty until like the nineteen eighties, it, it's yeah. really taboo. But uh, it's interesting because the movie actually ends up receiving a B rating for having morally objectionable content, yeah. in part from the Legion of Decency, specifically because Maureen O'Hara's character plays a divorcee. Yeah, I was surprised. I really thought they were going to go with like you know a widow situation because that is like so sympathetic. But they have to set her up for why she doesn't have the rose-colored glasses on she has to have gone through something that makes her question you know this idea of love and and just this like people just being kind to you and just this like wonderful thing and you also have to set up why she's a, a career woman at this time because again very unusual they have to go with divorcee because she's a modern woman. They want you to yeah. understand that she is standing on her own two feet of her own volition and is raising her daughter in that same way. If she is a widow, then it's just, you know, her on her fainting couch until another man comes along and can take care of her kind of thing. I like that she takes... Uh, she takes Fred to task all the way up through and to the almost to the very end of the movie, takes him to task for wanting to quit his lawyer, uh, his his law firm and then throwing away what she sees, kind of throwing away his career so that he can uh, go start his own practice. She calls it in that clip we just played, cha- chasing idealism for its sake. You know, she's a little bit of the commercialism machine that Alfred and Chris and even Mr. Macy, you know, before he kind of gets into the spirit, she's part of the machine that is that commercialism of Christmas that Chris and Alfred and and Fred come to kind of come to oppose for most of this movie. I really appreciated that they gave her a job in like an executive corporate kind of position versus, you know, she wasn't a seamstress. She wasn't, you know, a washwoman. She wasn't over in the factory or something like she is like someone who is intelligent. She's a peer of these other men. She's never treated like she's not. They never pat her on the head, you know, tap her on the butt, do anything. They never ask her to go get coffee. Like, I mean, nothing. She is an equal. I This is very unheard for these movies but that scene where she walks into she she's just fired chris 
as gently as she can anyway by coming up with the story that their old Santa has come return to town. She gets called to Mr. Macy's office. And I so there's two things that I like in this movie. I like that the men stand up because manners matter. And I think that's I think that's proper to do in 1947. I think that's proper to do now. And maybe that's old fashioned, but I think it's a sign of respect. But I like, though, that they treat her as a peer. They're not one person in that room scoffs. They respect her. They understand who she is. They understand that she's been called here by Mr. Macy because she has an important voice in this company and treat her accordingly. That's progressive. Honestly, that's progressive for 2021. There are people, if that, yes. if that, if that scene played now, people would still remark me like, I like seeing a woman in that role and being de- 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 being depicted that way. Well, we were getting, we're getting that in 1947, so that's pretty awesome. Even more so than that, Caroline, I like how this movie starts at the Thanksgiving Day Parade. She's a yeah. boss on the street, giving orders left, right, decisive, making calls, telling people, stripping, having, having drunk Santa stripped down <laughs> because he's a disgrace. I thought it was a fantastic little trivia that it was the real Thanksgiving Day Parade. I thought that was amazing that they did that and that they actually had the actor who played Chris Kringle up there on the on the sleigh. I thought that was so fun and cool. And like as someone who has watched Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade every year, I feel like to get to see that little snip of being that, you know, so long ago was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. I love it. Not only is he the real Santa on the sleigh in the parade, is anyone better played santa than edmund gwynn he is my quintessential like i don't have you ever seen that little plastic santa that's like from like the 1950s and it has the little cherry cheeks and the Mm -hmm. little blue eyes and the little and his little white beard it is it is him yeah like it's so crazy to me and his physique the fact that he is like so slight and just has like a little a little belly it makes so much more sense that that's what santa claus looks like he is so tiny compared to all the rest of the the adults all around but man that guy could get down a chimney mike whereas like the santas we have of of today they are huge and cannot get down a, a chimney very well but that little guy he just looks like a bigger version of the elves and like i believe it for me Anyway, that was always kind of my traditional idea in my head of Santa was Santa was just kind of a larger. He was some kind of hybrid between human and elf. He was just like a really larger elf. I I 100 percent agree with you. He is the quintessential Santa. He is when I close my eyes, I think what I'm picturing, which I didn't realize until I really sat down and watched this. Be like, yeah, he's he's who I have in my head. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he gained allegedly anyway, or reportedly he gained 30 pounds actually for this role. But think about the times. We're coming off of World War II. Mm-hmm. We had rations going on. We had all kinds of things. You know, people were sacrificing. And so I don't think it's the type of thing where you would have anyone in the populace with some big obese belly, you know? Yeah. So he, like, really suits the time as what you would think that meant. I mean, if he had gained 30 pounds, he would have been really tiny. Edmund Gwen was born in 1877. Think about Holy that. Smokes. Think about that for a second. Edmund <laughs> Gwen was born in 1877. That's funny. That's wild. That's wild. Yeah. So he, I mean, he really embodies the part. You know, Natalie Wood reportedly on set believed he was Santa Claus. 
I saw that. And oh my gosh, I read that she found out at the rap party when he was just wearing regular clothes and he wasn't wearing the beard that that he was actually just an actor. He had shaved his beard. That was actually, that was a real beard that he grew for the role. I, at least I've read that in several different accounts that it was his beard. In Natalie Wood's account, in the, in the story when she recounts it, she says he wasn't wearing the beard. But everything else I read said that that was actually his own beard and he had shaved it for the rap party. But yeah, could you imagine? He was so believable. Uh, Maureen O'Hara, said in her autobiography she said that still to that day and again this is like 2003 four people would come up to her and say you're the one who knows santa claus and she says yeah i know santa claus what would you like me to tell him so identifiable with edmund gwen is santa and the people from this movie i'd be like and do you know how to do the parent trap <laughs> That's what I would say to her. You're so funny. You're so funny. Oh, oh, so what I want to say was, so that parade, so not only is he playing the Santa on the sleigh in the parade, which that's the real footage, they had nine cameras set up all along the classic route, and if you've ever been in New York or you know the the geography a little bit, they really were taking you by the Upper West Side, uh, the Upper West Side uh, next to Central Park where the parade starts, and down Columbus Avenue, down all the way, I think it's down Fifth Avenue, down into... Um, into front of Herald Square, where the Macy's is. And that's where the parade ends. So it was great seeing that geography. And they had set up because there were no double takes. They couldn't do two takes for anything in that opening scene. Even uh, Natalie Wood and John Payne, who play Susan and Fred, they are actually in an apartment building on the parade route. That was being shot live while the parade was going on. They were shooting their scenes inside. That's so wonderful. It makes me feel so happy. And just even Susan's so very realistic comments of like, oh, that balloon was this balloon last year and blah, blah, blah. That's ex that's identical conversations that my little one has about the parade. Every year it goes by, she's like, oh, that one is redressed and blah, blah. She tells me all the little things, just like little Susan. I love that. I love that so much. Back in the day, at the end of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, Santa would then get up on top of the marquee in front of the Macy's and would address the assembled crowd. And essentially, it was a ceremony Macy's would do to officially begin the Christmas season. They would unveil the store windows, the which were decorated for Christmas. The music would play. They did that this year with, again, Edmund Gwen continuing to play Santa. He's on the marquee. When you see that in the movie and he's standing on the marquee, again, yeah. that was real footage from the parade. He's addressing Edmund Gwen playing Chris Kringle <laughs> in this movie, also for the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in 1946, is addressing the crowd as Santa Claus. They had Philip Tong introduce him. He's the one who plays Mr. Shellhammer in the movie. So he was in on the action also. He addressed the crowd at the Thanksgiving Day Parade in real life uh, as Mr. Shellhammer. And he's the one who, who like raised the curtains and began the music and stuff. So the That's two of them... So cool. How cool that is that? So much. Because for me... There's so much, I mean, again, like I am not selling it how much my kids are into this parade. We have books about the Macy's Day Parade that are like little children's books that explain what each part of the parade and what's happening. I mean, Amy Cool is like, she's the girl who's like for all these years wore the bowler hat and like, like snipped the, the ribbon. I didn't know the woman's name, but my kid knows the woman's name. <laughs> she's like the Macy's executive who does the scissors. 
it's so funny. And like, she loves her as much as she would love, like, you know, Britney Spears or something like, because she's the one who snips the ribbon to start the parade. And I'm like, you are so funny. So to see this, it's so historically fun to see the parade and have it be the real parade. Oh, I, I really, it, it is what starts the Christmas spirit in my household. I mean, like really kicks it into high gear. We're always a little Christmassy, but I mean, we put up the Christmas tree on Thanksgiving weekend. Like we're in full gear. So the fact that this movie starts there and the setting is in New York City, could it be more magical? No, from jump, when you hear the score in this movie start up, uh, Alfred Newman was a musical director and Edward P. B. Powell did the orchestral arrangements. That music, when when Chris is walking down the, the street and he pops in to correct the man about the reindeer in the window, <laughs> the, listen to that music. It's so jaunty, but it's instantly Christmassy. Yeah. You're instantly in a Christmas mood. When you put that together with the parade, it's it's such a vibe. It's such a feeling. You can't help but be transported to that time and that place and that feeling. Not for me, anyway. Every time I watch, both times I watch this movie, I was instantly in a Christmas mood. I had Christmas music playing both (laughs) times after this movie was done playing. You know, I really think that the setting of New York City and then also the realism in this movie, that there is so much about this that we're not being transported to the North Pole. We don't have, like, these this magic spirit that's going to come in and do something at the last minute to save it. Everything is real in so many ways. That to weave Santa Claus into this feels like the most magical, more magical than if you, you know, sense down the, the, the fairy or something, you know, like this just feels like the most real to me. Well, is it maybe because that Christmas isn't just a day, but it's a frame of mind, Caroline? I think it might be, Mike. Oh, Christmas isn't just a day. It's a frame of mind. And that's what's been changing. I like that attitude so much because I think you hear the excuse that commercialism and people wanting to buy things and making it all about the gifts is the problem. And I like how he distills it down to like, no, 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 that's not it. It's that people are really losing their spirit, that that giving and that love and that imagination. They're giving up those things. And that's what's the pity of it all. He keeps track of the toy market very closely. He knows I what know. all the sales are in all the stores. <laughs> I love that dis- that depiction of, of Santa because that's a movie you can then watch with your kids. And it explains why Santa gets you some toys and your parents get you toys. Yeah. And why you might see your mom shopping for Christmas or something like that. And that's not out of line. Like not, at all. No, it's a, it's a, it's a two hand effort to bring c- c- uh, kids their magical Christmas. You know, there are things that fall to Santa to take care of. And there are things that, you know, your mom and dad can do when, you know, depending on the sale at Gimbel's or Stern's or Macy's. I got, when I saw Stern's, Caroline, I used to get all of my pants before school, the school year would start. My parents would always go down to either Stern's or to JC pennies but sterns i haven't heard of that story in forever but i have clear <laughs> memories of going to sterns for back to school clothes it was it just whew, blew my mind blew my <laughs> mind seeing that you know i was shocked when i was reading the little trivia that neither gimbals nor macy's had actually okayed having their name being used in this movie until all the filming was complete that's insane what a gamble they waited until they saw a screener and to Seton's credit and, and 20th Century Fox's credit, they didn't show them any film of the movie 
they could have probably pursued it, but they didn't show them any film of the movie until it was done and cut, and it was exactly how they wanted it to look. And then they sat down, the representatives from Macy's and Gimbel's, to watch the film, and then both both parties signed off on it. And why wouldn't they? They come off looking so good in this. The idea of we want to put community service ahead of profit, that message, why wouldn't they want that commercial for themselves? You say that, but do you know that Macy's did not agree for the 1994 version? And they had to make up a fake department store, Kohl's. They did, and Gimbel's was out of business by that point, and so they they didn't use Gimbel's either. And it's the same reason— but wait, isn't that crazy? Like, they totally were like, mm, nope, we're out. Like, there's already a Macy's movie, and we're done. To be fair, I haven't actually watched the 1994 movie, but I did read about it, and I read that it was a darker tone, and it wasn't as buoyant and joyous as this movie is. So maybe that's why— they that's totally it. fair, but it makes this one that much more special. It makes that one much more special. And just because we're we're doing this podcast, and so we're going to see, I think, connections between different Christmas movies, 2003's Elf also placed their, well, Buddy the Elf and their, their store Santa in a Macy's. But Macy's, they went to Macy's after the filming was done, and Macy says, no, you can't use our name. But they had clearly set it up as Macy's, and so they actually ended up using Gimbel's name, Gimbel's, which then becomes an Easter egg because Gimbel's is out of business by 2003. Uh, but Macy's actually refused, even though all of the location shots out in the exteriors are like Macy's. But Macy's refused to have their name because they didn't want uh, a spurious uh, Santa, you know, besmirching the name inside the store. So something about this movie specifically was so magical to me that it was willing to attach its name when twice later on it refused to do so. I think it's fascinating. And again, just makes it that much more special. You feel like you're you're getting in on a little bit of history and a little bit of just like this, this moment in time that was like perfectly special. The real R.H. Macy, the one who the company is actually named for, um, I think it's actually officially changed now, but for a long time, it was actually called R.H. Macy's & Co. The R.H. stands for Rowland Hussey. Uh, he actually died in 1877, 70 years before when this film takes place. Wow, he actually died the year that Edmund Gwen was born. How weird is that? Very. What if he went into his body? Oh, my like, God. Like that. And like the spirit was inside him, <gasps> which allows for him to be able to keep up with the toy market, but also have the yes. spirit of Santa inside of him. Yes. Uh, but it's funny though, that they decided to use R.H. Macy's name just again to hammer home because people in 1847, uh, 1847, people in 1947 are going to know it as R.H. Macy's. So it, I thought it was just a little fun, little fun fact. Very fun. So we talked about Maureen O'Hara and, and how she does a great job. We talked about... Well, we didn't really talk too much about John uh, Payne as Fred Gailey, other than some of our issues. Is he an even foil for her? Asked another way. Asked another way. Is he a good defender of Kris Kringle and Santa Claus and all that Christmas stands for? Is he up to the task? Yes, absolutely. I think that he's fantastic. I think he plays this perfect part of like a guy who is very smart and very you know trustworthy and careful with the way that he he does act around Susan and and Doris but at the same time he he can push on her and be like are you sure that this is the way you want to do it like he has to have this not too aggressive not over the top masculine not over the top overbearing kind of personality where she can hear this you know she can hear this information from him and over time it can sink in and that you can 
again, I felt completely safe with him with Susan. Like there was no pervy vibes that I got. There could have been plenty of other actors where I would have felt eked out. Right. Well, I think I think he establishes himself as a safe place for both Susan and for Doris. He is non-judgmental. He's confident in his own beliefs, so he doesn't need to fight with Doris over hers, even if he doesn't agree with them. He is confident in his masculinity enough, and he's confident in his beliefs about Christmas and faith and the lovely intangibles enough that he can have a respectful conversation with her. There's a lot of versions of this script. You know, there's a lot of writers who are going to make this a shouting match. She's going to say one thing he's gonna say you're crazy they're gonna scream at each other but it never gets to that point they're they're nothing they're never anything other than very respectful of each other's opinions maybe a bit exasperated but never never disrespectful to each other which i like i agree and i think that's a huge point for this movie because it has that level of like integrity between the characters where no one has to be made a fool in order to be you know in opposition with one another and i think that's huge it is huge because you have that not only fred and Doris having these respectful disagreements with each other, but you have Macy at Macy and Gimbal also having to come together. And these are two Titans who are locked in, in, in real life, are locked in major competition with each other. When Doris says to Shellhammer at the beginning, imagine Mr. Gimbal had heard it, you know, about the drunk Santa. There was a thing I read that there was a saying at the time, if you were in Macy's, imagine what Gimbal's hears. The idea that they were very protective of of secrets, of, of trade secrets between the two companies, because they were, they were so closely located but they were also in such fierce competition as the two largest department stores at the time and they're able to come together sure chris is between them but they're shaking hands they're donating money for the x-ray machine you know there's this whole spirit of we are rivals but we are respectful each other and i'd say the courtroom scene other than sawyer that who is a bad bad man Right. Uh, but but District Attorney Mara, he's just doing his job. There's no there's no malicious intent with him. The Judge Harper, there's no malicious intent there. They're just kind of doing their job and they're they're being as respectful as they need to be. And I think Mara actually, the fact that he ends up conceding because little Tommy puts him on the spot, concedes that the state of New York believes in Santa Claus. I love all of that because it's adults having disagreements without it having to be high drama they're not willing to break their kids hearts or their or their imagination or their beliefs in order to be right and i think that there's something that again like going back to that integrity part the like dignity side of the of the story there's adults who are not willing to throw their kids under the bus and that is that's a big deal as silly as that sounds like caroline come on now these are christmas movies you wouldn't expect that but it's not true we've seen it plenty of times we just saw it in elf you know Mm -hmm. i mean I would not say that we don't have situations where dad definitely throws money under the bus, you know, and, and isn't sticking up for him. But in this way, every time you turn around, adults are sticking up for kids in various ways and they don't want to ruin things for them. Even Doris doesn't want to ruin things for Susan. From her point of view, she's she's best preparing Susan to face the world. From her point of view, she's trying to arm Susan with the tools she needs to face a cruel, cruel world as she sees it. You know, a very a very black and white kind of world. So okay, even- and I'm gonna even I'm gonna slow you down for just a second because I disagree with you on the word of like cruel world. I don't think that Doris is saying that it's a cruel world. You and I had a great conversation about New York City 
only children um, back when we were doing The Undoing. Mm-hmm. And we had a kiddo who was, a, who was older than Susan, but still, the idea of being like a little more street smart, a little more of like a tiny adult, a little bit more just pragmatic because they have to be able to handle themselves in busier, more chaotic, more adult situations all the time. They're being asked to kind of rise up. And especially her just being like a single parent trying to probably she, she probably isn't around a lot of other little kids necessarily when she said she goes to a progressive school i kind of like you know i really laughed to myself there's something about susan herself that sells it natalie wood sells it so well right. that it's not that the world is a bad place it's just that we put more emphasis on being pragmatic logical reasonable because that's what doris needs in order to kind of parent this little person you yes. know she doesn't want tantrums and silliness when I say cruel, I, I was being flowery and being, I was being poetic and not exact. But the idea, and this this is very much my experience, this is very much my my own thesis, that kids in New York City grow up faster. Kids in Manhattan have to grow up faster, just like you were saying, like just like the undoing when we had this conversation. Uh, and I think you see that so much in Susan. And the idea, you get very much the impression that Doris can leave Susan for hours, whether or not Cleo's there. You know, she she's probably going to be taking the subway in not too many years' time by herself kind of thing. And Absolutely. I think that's the world that I think Doris, that, that cruel world was was hyperbole. But She just really needs her to be independent and, and yes, mature. Yes, yes, yes. You yeah. know, she needs her to be mature because, you know, when you live in a big city and, and you're being asked to be in a very adult situation many times, you have to be able to carry yourself. If you are somebody whose head's in the clouds, who's blowing bubbles and acting like a monkey and doing all those things, that's a pain for any parent to deal with. But most especially if you're like on a busy city street or in a busy city park or something like you can't, you cannot afford for your kid to be overly silly, you know? No, no. And, but it comes at a cost though. It comes at a, it comes at a cost. And thank God you have an actress like Natalie Wood, who here was eight years old when this movie was made, being able to make us believe that she is really this child. We've really actually lucked out with these older movies and great kid actors. Cause I'm thinking of the young actors in it's a wonderful life who were also so, so good. But Natalie Wood here, for me, steals the show. As good as Edmund mm. Gwen is as Chris Kringle, and he really is fantastic. She really makes this movie super entertaining because she is just this little adult. The story where she's talking to Chris about going over her friend's house and what kind of animal are you? I'm not an animal. I'm a girl. Only animals out here. Goodbye. And she like waves her hand so dismissively, you know, impersonating her little <laughs> school friend is so good. But it comes at a cost. She doesn't know what imagination is. Yeah. And you can understand, you know, again, you can you could imagine that Doris would choose a school that would put independence and being very mature and responsible ahead of imagination corner and dress up and, you know, whatever, that kind of thing, you know. So and it only makes sense because that's what works for their family dynamic. So and where they live, you know, so I completely understand it. I'm so glad that, you know, we talked about this in Polar Express, the idea of that adult that comes into your life. This was the equivalent of the hobo. That sort of anonymous adult or some adult that makes you think that you're not expecting to come into your life. In many ways for Susan, if she just kept with Doris and she just kept with Cleo, she just had her normal life. She was lacking that sort of like random adult to come in and say, it's okay to be silly. It's okay to blow your bubble gum. It's okay to act like a monkey. And like, we had that in this movie. We had the, that represented here. 
No, to me the imagination is a place all by itself, a separate country. Now, you've heard of the French nation, the British nation. Well, this is the imagination. It's a wonderful place. How would you like to be able to make snowballs in the summertime, eh? Or drive a great big bus right down Fifth Avenue? How would you like to have a ship all to yourself that makes daily trips to China and Australia? How would you like to be the Statue of Liberty in the morning and in the afternoon fly south with a flock of geese? I want to do all those things. A Statue of Liberty <laughs> in the morning and fly south with a flock of geese in the afternoon. I love that. And I want to do all of those things. And you right. know what? I'm so sad that I did not know that quote when I was teaching little ones because I think to be able to say, you know, the French nation, this is imagination. <laughs> it's such a I wonderful way to describe it. imagination. Yes. It, it, there are so many parts here. When you listen to Chris speak, when you listen to Fred speak, when you listen to Fred speak to Chris Gringle, there are, and, and Alfred and Chris also capture this a lot. There are so many aspects here that check us as adults and make us do a self-assessment. If we're paying attention to what the movie is trying to tell us that stop and make us uh, do a self-assessment on ourselves. Have we lost any of this? This is the equivalent of, can you still hear the bell? So can I ask you a question? As an adult, is it okay for you to take time and use your imagination? Good God, yes. Do you? Do you like, do you ever sit and like imagine something or like, do you allow your, do you indulge yourself in that way? I don't know that I jump around making monkey sounds and scratching. I'll, I'll <laughs> certainly do that with my kid. I, I, you know, I will, I will get my passport out and travel to the uh, land of imagination with my son. I think I experience the, the ideas of imagination and stuff in more creative outlets, you know, whether it's writing or uh, thinking about a review of something I've watched, it, you know, I, I, I think it it filters into kind of how I just live my everyday life. This is how I use it. And this was actually something that really resonated with me because I think this is something I would ask Chris Kringle if I was sharing twin beds with him. <laughs> the idea of, I've always wanted to ask, the greatest question known to man, do you keep your whiskers on the outside or on the inside? I didn't even know what that meant at first. I was like, what is he talking about? Then when he was said the outside and he pulled up his covers, I was like, oh my goodness, I would not even know. That's such a funny Such a idea. funny thing. It's such yeah. a funny thing. It's such a silly thing for an adult yes. to ask. And that Fred Fred had that question ready. And yes, he's joking about it. Obviously, he's building it up to be something more than it is. And I really thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be like, you know, what's the meaning of life? Or I don't know, something really serious. But he thought about it, though. He had that question ready. So at some point, his little silly brain came up with that question and it tickled him and it made Santa, it made Chris amused and he had an answer for it. I mean, the back and forth there was just so good. He's like, the cold yeah. air makes them grow. I love that scene because that that's actually the specific scene that made me stop and do a gut check of, have I lost it? This is the Polar Express, you know, can you still hear the bell? I like to think I can still hear the bell. Fred Gailey can definitely still hear the bell. Yeah, it actually challenges me to hear the bell even more clearly because yeah. I think that my spirit is happy and I have that little part of me, but I would really like to give myself permission to truly 
use my imagination more, really use it and not be like afraid that I would look silly or whatever. And I don't just mean with children. I mean, like it would be okay to sit and imagine a scenario that's, that's really fanciful. And that's, that would be an acceptable use of my time because using your imagination is healthy and good. And I, I, I'm going to like challenge my own little self from this movie to try to do that more. Make a snow angel, Mike. Make a snow angel. <laughs> I've put things to film and publish it in social media and other outlets that were very silly and very kind of childlike in the moment. And I don't regret any of them. So I think it, I think it's true. I think you do have to challenge yourself. I think you do have to allow yourself to be silly and make a fool of yourself. Sometimes you just have to, you know, get up and do the karaoke. If you're presented with that challenge, sometimes you just have to get up and dance like no one's watching you, even if people are watching you. Maybe that's the adult equivalent. Like imagine you're a great singer. Imagine you're a great dancer and just do it and and be okay with it. Maybe that's the adult equivalent. I believe, even though it's silly, I believe... That's what Susan says at the end when after they leave the party, she's in the back because oh, because Santa hasn't I didn't got know where it was coming from. I didn't know. Well, because that's I mean, that's what you're kind of holding on to, even though it's silly. I believe, you know, the, the idea yeah. that we still have to hold on to it, even when we feel dumbest about it, even when it, there's no reason, there's no commonsensical reason to hold on to something. Sometimes that's the when you have to hold on to the idea the most. All of it really resonates as an adult, as someone who wants to raise a child that never stops believing, that never stops having an imagination, never stops believing in the power of fairy tales. I feel like the the, the issue with that and, and having been a teacher and having seen little ones and then hanging around adults is that there easily becomes a time when adults aren't allowed to have an imagination. And so if you're a kid and you're trying to be an you're trying to be mature then you can't have an imagination like those two things are you know they don't they don't go together so if you want to have a kid who has an imagination you have to have an imagination you can't just play with the kid and be like let's be imaginative but then you yourself are not someone who would ever indulge in that because all you're teaching them to do is once you grow up you can't have this anymore you have to only do it when you're little and i think that that's fascinating and something that that i think chris kringle's trying to teach doris like this isn't just about susan we don't just want susan to believe he wants doris to believe too the clip we played earlier about Christmas isn't just a day, it's a frame of mind, and that's the thing that's been changing. That scene goes on, and he says to her, you and Susan are the perfect test case for me. Because mm. if I can convince you, if I can if I can convince you to be childlike in your wonderment and belief, and, and believe in me, and believe in the things that Christmas and I stand for, then all is not lost. Essentially... If I can't, then he's going to become the old man that he becomes. Caroline, when he's in the wheelchair, when he allows himself Ugh. to get committed to Bellevue, he is already a tiny, a tiny man. When he's in the wheelchair, my heart breaks. It both times I watched it. Even my son who watched it with me earlier today, he, he awed in a sad way because he looks so broken and defeated. Yes. And yeah. it's not because of Sawyer. It's because Doris, it's because he thought he had, I was on the right track with Doris. And that she allowed this to happen to him because the Sawyer lies to him in the car. I know I keep saying this, Mike, but I'm keeping come back to this. Like, if you're an adult and you're listening to this and you feel like I have the Christmas spirit, I'm going to really challenge you to, like, double check yourself and see, like, do you really have the Christmas spirit? Or are you an adult who thinks it's good and, and fun to, like, especially have little kids believe in Santa and stuff like that? But, like, do you yourself still have it? Because I think that this movie 
really challenges all the adults and the big way bigger than than Susan. I don't know we're talking a lot about Susan, but is so much more about the judge and the lawyers all and and the newspapers and and the public. They're, they're all adults. Chris Kringle cares and needs to for the plot of the movie convince them that the magic of Christmas is still there. That is something that we have not had to really wrestle with quite as hard. We've had individuals, like we had Ebenezer Scrooge say, Mm -hmm. um, but that was more about kindness. That wasn't about Santa. This is a little different, and it really, I think, is just like laser-focused on like, hey, adults, this is a gut check for you. Do you leave it in in the realm of possibility that magic still happens? Do you still believe in stuff? I like, because that's a daunting task, and just listening to you set that out, you're scared. Well, it, it sounds so impossible, <laughs> Caroline. And it, 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 it sounds so frightening because because you and I, I think, are two people who do hold on to the silly aspects of life. I think you and I are two people who are more likely to jump around making monkey sounds than most Uh, Yes. You know, for sure. There's often so, and this comes up a lot, we talk about this, how many, how over-serious so many people are that kind of come across us in our life. I'm so thankful for when you run into people like the guys, the random guys in the post office sorting office who, who decide to go help out this case and have all the letters from the dead letter office uh, picked up and delivered to the courthouse. Well, hang on a minute. That's how you read that. You read it like they were trying to help him out. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 No, I oh, think no. I, I completely uh, heard that as like, because I, doesn't the guy verbatim say like, why should we have to house these Let's go dump them off at the at the courthouse. I think there's an infl- I think that's a New York sarcasm inflection that maybe you're missing. Oh. To to me to me it very much was like to me it was very much like uh, oh we finally got Santa in, you know in the house let's go help this guy out that I I read it very so you read it like you like that was genuine yes. they wanted to help him yes whether or not they believed him oh. I think they were tickled my reading of it anyway tone tonally my reading of it was they were amused by the story enough to want to go help him whether it is a stick it to the man or they really believed that this guy was Chris Kringle the idea that they were genuine doing this because that's actually a lot of work for them to go do those letters are already at the dead letter office like actually a lot of work for them to go pull them out and go bring them down to the courthouse so i think they were genuinely trying to support this side either because it amused them or because they genuinely believed but i I think it was uh i disagree i think it wasn't sincere at all i think that that was just they were storing these letters and he was like why should we have to store them and if this guy seems to think he's chris kringle let him deal with them. So I, I disagree on that plot point. But I, I think that... Well, it, isn't mine the I, better way, though? <laughs> isn't mine the happier way that there are some people out there in the trenches fighting with us? Uh, I guess, but it's but I like the fact that this is based in realism. So it doesn't bother me that they don't, that they would go at it from this angle. I want to say that from a comedy kind of standpoint, I think that the way that they set this up and we get all the way to the point of the trial, I am so very proud of the of the uh, writers and the director and, and everyone involved to find a way to make the story be able to turn out the way it does without a magic wand and without mm-hmm. something supernatural happening i think that it's so wonderful that it's like a real regular life 
transaction, basically, is what saves the day because that is what I was discussing in a couple of other of our Christmas movies that makes me feel so special about Christmas. It's not necessarily about Santa, but it's when something happens sort of unexplainable that just sort of fits in in the moment. And no one was even necessarily trying to do something so good, but it just fit and worked and suddenly it worked out. And it was like, oh my God, who could see that coming? There is a magic wand insofar as this was a time when people, when the post office was seen as an efficiently run and profitable business. So I, I thought that was really funny. I, I well, it, well, it's funny because in 2021, the post office is, is a complete horror show. Have and- you ever seen that? There's like the. <laughs> There's like a comedian and he talks about how when the postmaster general comes on and he's like sweating bullets and he's like, we can't do it anymore, people. We have to raise the price of the stamps by a penny. OK, we just can't run it on this budget. And they're all, and he's like, oh, he's so panicked. And you're like, just give him a penny. I have no idea how much a stamp even costs. It's fine. But he's always so apologetic. It's so funny. Yeah, it, it's uh, the post office is, is a whole thing, but I like the it fact is. I you know it's stuff like that that makes you wistful. When people say when people say I, I watched this old movie and I was really I became very wistful for the nostalgia of it. It's it's things like the post office being this well respected, you know. <laughs> I mean, they, everyone in that courtroom was going out of their way to say how much they respect the the post office. <laughs> you know, <laughs> District Attorney Mara has to talk about how 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 much you know the state of New York supports and loves the post yeah. office and judge but it harper is so, it's so true though that it's like it's not it's it's that but it's also like that they're not ripping anything you know like it's back to that dignity integrity part to this movie that that stays across the board like they're not ripping into the the post office the way i'm just laughing about it they're able to talk to each other and have disagreements and not rip each other up like there's something really refreshing about that especially in our time right now when it seems like no one can have even a, the littlest bit of a disagreement without taking each other down you know in our cancel culture business i mean they would have just canceled chris kringle in a second you know and that would have been the end of it but no like there's still that bit of integrity that someone should be able to defend themselves you should hear them out there should be a conversation we should listen i'm missing that part of life i don't know that you and i were ever adults in that era when people really could have an actual conversation without making a big old scene no i I think that stopped somewhere in the mid 90s Oh, really? I'm going back further. After Kennedy, but the, that's when people started to kind of re- like really peep into like politicians' private lives, and then yeah. things kind of got weirder, weirder and weirder. Well, I'm glad you brought up politicians, because there's a weird subplot in this movie that even after two viewings very close together, I still cannot make heads or tail what the reason for it is. So there's this whole subplot in this movie that Judge Harper is getting ready to run for re-election uh, as a judge because judges, uh, well... Not all judges. Uh, well, this, this judge is. So, so state Supreme Court judges are actually appointed. They don't actually run. County court judges in New York State run for judgeship. Let's put that aside. Let's say that at this time, this judge in this role is running for election. His advisor, his campaign manager, Charlie, William Frawley, who would go on in four years to become uh, Fred Mertz on I Love Lucy, if, if he recognized him, if you watch this movie and recognized him, that's Fred Mertz before he was Fred Mertz, spends the whole movie kind of warning him. Well, at first warning him to get off of the case because being seen as being anti-Santa Claus and Chris Kringle is not going to be a good look for running for office. And Harper kind of poo him on this idea, right? But 
all of the looks and stuff in the courtroom uh, did it was baffling to me did, did you make heads or tail of why that can kept going on for so long all i could think about was that maybe it was you know aimed at a part of the audience that you and i do not represent so maybe it was for you know the the more mature father who is only seeing this movie because someone made him mm. not because they willingly put it on but so if you add a little bit of this sort of like i don't know guys guy kind of backroom politics to it i don't think it's necessary but it does Again, kind of speak to the realism of it of like, these are real things that real people would be thinking about, I suppose. It was a little too real for me. Like, I didn't, you know, it didn't need to be there. He could have had those conversations with his wife. She could have been like, you know what? You're going to get yourself like completely, you know, beat up in the press and stuff for doing this. They could have had that conversation, but that wasn't, that wasn't how it was done in the day. He has to talk to another man about this. Right. Right. Well, so so I think it's unnecessary because I think they actually cover that in a couple different places. One, there's this theme that the judge's wife and his grandkids turn against him because he's putting Chris Kringle on trial, a lunacy trial. Uh, what, what a greatly horrible antiquated word, you know. And so I like the fact that they're mad at him. I like the fact that Mara, the DA, his wife sends their kids to bed. Tommy, you know, I, you know, I took note of the kid's name. T- sends him to bed and. And she kind of gives it to him that she can't believe he's, you know, persecuting Chris Kringle. I, so I like that these guys are being brought under fire for doing their jobs and also don't understand why people are so upset because from their point of view, clearly this guy is crazy and should be committed to Bellevue. But I think Mara and the judge represent the idea of guessing this man because what does it really cost them for him to allow for to allow him to refer to himself as Chris Kringle and just kind of like smiling politely and nodding at it that you know I'm only here because you know my kid made me come and say it like I know the truth but I'm gonna smile and say because what does it cost me to do I think they actually kind of represent that well in Mara and Macy Macy gets on the stand and says I believe that he is Santa Claus. Now he, we see the flashbacks. We, well, not flashbacks. We see his thought bubbles, and right. he's making a calculated decision here, which only reinforces the idea that he's only saying he believes Chris Kringle is Santa Claus because it's good business for him to do so. I think all of that kind of covers this idea that Charlie and the judge are getting across to each other. You know, they didn't necessarily have to go through that part. But I but I also agree that it was important to kind of have that sliver of the population acknowledged. Like, you know, do grown adult men have to acknowledge Santa Claus? And this movie says, yes. And you have your own reasons. And we know you have your own reasons. Some of you, it's because your wife and your kids are going to be mad at you and your grandkids. Some of you, it's because it's better for business. But regardless, grown adult men should acknowledge Santa Claus is real. And like, that's what the story tells us. Only because you you said something that maybe hit on it. Um, my son watched this, and he had two quotes that he wants me to read. He had two, he had two reviews of this movie, and if you give me a second and indulge me, I'd like to read both of them. Sure. These were these were these were young Thomas, twelve year old. This was his review of the movie. I asked him what the messages were of this movie, what he thought. Message one: You shouldn't judge a book by its cover, which is fair. 
idea, the idea that Chris is, you know, presents as crazy and they write him off without really giving him a chance. Because uh, I think he, he was really mad at Sawyer and Mara and the judge. He really didn't like them. He saw them as true villains. And I think the only real villain in this movie is Sawyer. I think he's really the only antagonist in this movie. And to be super fair, I mean, during this time, this is this is when, you know, housewives are being prescribed, you know, tranquilizers and stuff like this. There was a real overreach in psychiatry that you can't have feelings you can't be different you have to do everything exactly like everyone else or else you're maladjusted or you're having you know some sort of problem that psychiatry and psychology sort of overreached during this time everybody needed to be medicated or committed for sure even when they weren't really psychiatrists or psychologists which i don't think we ever really got an answer that sawyer was either one or the other you know he seemed like he was just like a human resources like filter Yeah. And then that was kind of it, right? He was just yeah. supposed to make sure you weren't going to like do anything crazy at the store, but yeah, or that you were qualified like, to do the job for which you were yeah. being interviewed to do. Yeah. Again, overreach. Overreach, overreach. Uh, so the second thought, and this goes towards, I think, what we were talking about, about those men who feel like they're above having to believe in Chris Kringle. Thomas says, Santa Claus is real, and those that don't believe in him are stupid. So that's the well-reasoned thoughts of a 12-year-old. And I'm not I'm not disinclined. I'm not inclined to disagree with him. I I, I happen to agree with him. <laughs> what we should do is, you know, fast forward 20 years and see if if young Thomas is still willing to say that, or 20 years or 30 years, and see if he's still willing to say that. Because what happens is it kind of gets beat out of you. You become an adult and and people say you're you can't believe in things. You, you know, you're not allowed anymore. You're not allowed to have an imagination and you're not allowed to be like that or else we're going to think something's wrong with you as illustrated. I do want to bring up this idea. This whole concept that no one will allow him to say he's Kris Kringle, that it is unacceptable to identify himself as Santa Claus, that he has to gel with what everyone else says he is, is a very 2021 conversation to have you know what what do you identify as who Mm -hmm. are you are you allowed to say i feel like chris kringle i dress like him i i i am him i I, that is who i am Mm -hmm. does anyone else have the right to say no you aren't i think you're 100 correct and fred when fred makes this point to the judge he says that he says no one questions you, Judge, when you say you're Judge Harper and Judge Harper, not understanding where he's going with it, not living in 2021 with this conversation, says, I know very well who I am, young man, kind of move on. And and Fred is trying to make the point. No one has the right to say who anyone is. If if I say I'm Michael Caputo. No one can tell me I'm not Michael Caputo. It's who I am. And if Chris Kringle says he's Chris Kringle, then no one has the right to say this idea that anyone has ownership over the idea of Santa Claus or Chris Kringle is preposterous. Or really anyone like really go with the idea that like since since in today's day and age, you can, you know, identify however you are gender wise or you can change your name in the courts. You can do whatever you want. Then aren't you the only person who decides who you are? And like, you definitely are not who the people around you see. 
I just watched this great show on Hulu tonight called uh, In and of Itself. It's one of those things that you should go in not knowing a ton about. You should just watch it. But it does raise the question in my own self after the fact of this idea that who are you and can anyone really know who you are since they only see one part of you? It's not up to everyone else in the public to decide if he's Chris Kringle or not. He decided he was Chris Kringle and therefore he was. And where is the line? I love when they were trying to say, how do you prove he's not Chris Kringle? Like, what's the other side of the argument? Right. What what evidence do you bring forward for that? There isn't anything. <laughs> what does it cost you? What does it what does it cost you to say this guy is Chris Kringle? What does it cost you to allow him to to think of himself that way and refer to himself that way. That's always one of my opening arguments. Whenever anyone says in any context, it's not okay for that person to present themselves as X, Y, or Z. What does it matter to you? You don't have to live their life. They're not harming you in any way. They're not taking your identity. It's not like you. It's not like detect. It's not like District Attorney Mara is identifying as Chris Kringle and that this man is trying to usurp him. What does it matter to you? And it's not like that this particular character was, it's not like he was seeking children out randomly on the street. Right. If you bring your child to see Chris Kringle and on Chris Kringle's lap, he sits and talks about being Santa Claus. I'm sorry. Who did what to the who now? <laughs> you brought them to him and said, this is Santa Claus. And then he's saying, I'm Santa Claus. And you're like, I'm horrified. Wait, what? Right. <laughs> like, come on. What did you want? Right. What were you hoping for? What better thing than to find the real one? Well, this movie in so many ways acts as this great antidote to cynicism also, right? And especially New York cynicism. There's the mother who gets mad at Chris when he promises the boy will get the fire engine, I think it is. Yeah, fire engine. But man, how real was that, Mike? Oh, my God. Leading with him like, no, don't say it. Don't say it. They don't have it anywhere. Like it was like, oh, my God, I Uh, feel you so hard. And that was 1947. And this is 2021. And I feel you so hard. I mean, the best is when she says, "Okay, go over there and play, honey, because because mama wants to thank Santa, too. And she lays (laughs) into him. But then he he like he he completely stops her in her in his tracks and befuddles her by sending her over to uh, now that he. That reference wasn't to Gimbal's. That was to another store over on 5th. And he has the price and he he says it's quite a bargain. She's befuddled because this is just not how the world works. And it wasn't how the world worked in 1947. And it's not how the world works in 2021. And it's this ultraviolet light held up against cynicism and, and expecting the worst from people that this movie does such a good job. It does this major Care Bear stare against all of these negative thoughts and negative behaviors that we we just accept and then perpetuate so often. I, I love that scene because it's like a little throwaway scene and it's very identifiable. Parents, all you know, it, it, we have all been that mother at some point. Gosh, especially this year, gosh, with COVID delivery, it was like, ah! don't promise anything but her confusion at him helping her and saying no no you can it wasn't like she didn't want to get the fire engine it was just that she had tried the best as she could and was out of answers but he helped her he was he was like a modern day google search for her you know (laughs) to to go and find it so she was just confused she wasn't mad if she walked away not mad she walked away not upset and it's not until she's successful and she comes back and she tells shellhammer and that leads to that really sets off this whole thing of let's be a helpful store because it'll lead to more profits. But we, we hush that second part. But let's yeah. be a helpful story. I mean, the, the befuddlement, I love the idea of 
You don't have to raise your voice to confront cynicism and negativity. You just have to be kind. What if you go with the idea that there is there, we don't have to agree with the concept that nice guys finish last. We don't have to whisper. And by the way, you'll also be more profitable if you're a, a nice and caring and generous company. You can say it out loud. You can say you will be more profitable. You can say it loudly. Nice guys can finish first. You mm-hmm. can be generous. You can be helpful and you can make money. All those things can exist together. I think that even that message is like, wait a minute, that means that Santa Claus, the Christmas spirit and commercialism actually can coexist. It's just when you get cutthroat and weird about it, that's when it's not not okay. So one thing I really enjoyed that really left a bad taste in my mouth watching It's a Wonderful Life. And when I went to give it a Jingle Bell rating, I think it affected and I gave I gave It's a Wonderful Life a very high Jingle Bells rating. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was this bad taste I was left with. The idea that Mr. Potter, Lionel Barrymore's character, has no comeuppance. There, mm-hmm. There's no point at which Mr. Potter is actually held to account for the horrible things he does in that movie. And he is truly one of the worst villains of all time in any movie. And he gets away with it. He gets to keep the $8,000. Everything everything that's, that snapped George Bailey, Mr. Potter gets away with. And I didn't like that. Watching this movie and watching Sawyer get fired by Macy after he tells him, what'd you get your degree from a correspondence school? And he says, you're fired. <laughs> it, it, it felt so good. It was so cathartic because on top of like, honestly, if the movie had happened, if the movie had ended without that, I still would have been okay with it because yeah. I, I had already moved on from Sawyer. Like I wasn't, I wasn't devoting any brain space to him because he was such a bad person. But the fact that the movie decided to cross that T and dot that I made me feel so happy. It made me feel so happy that there was cub uppins for the bad person in the movie. I agree. And I and I also agree that I appreciated the extra mile they went to actually show you where everybody ended up further out from that, that what actually happened with Susan's present, which since you guys may not have seen it, we don't have to spoil it for you. But the idea that it it actually completes the story with a big red bow on top. I think we're just we're so spoiled in movies today that they're going to have really long drawn out endings. And this movie just kind of it it resolves its very last two points, puts a nice yep. bow on it and then credits. They're like, good night. Basically, yeah. All right, Mike, we should get into some fast facts. All right. Hit me with one. Well, we had talked about in It's a Wonderful Life how it was so hot that our actors were were having such a hard time. In this one, it was so (laughs) cold during the shooting of some of the scenes that the cameras literally froze. Can you believe that? That is uh, crazy. Wild. What you got? In the scene when we first see Chris being the Macy's store Santa, a little Dutch girl who had just been adopted sits on his lap and... Uh, the mother tries to warn Chris or tries to warn Santa that she doesn't speak English. She only speaks Dutch. And so Chris Kringle begins to converse with her in Dutch. The untranslated dialogue between them, because it's not subtitled, you have no idea what they're actually saying, which is part of the wonder of the thing. In the untranslated dialogue, the Chris asks her what she wants for Christmas, and she says she doesn't need anything. She doesn't want anything. She had her gift by being adopted by her new mother. Aww. How sweet is that? 
so sweet. I love that part. It, it was It's so reminiscent of every year there's like a little video out. One of my kiddos uses American Sign Language and it was so, it's always heartwarming when you see a Santa Claus do some ASL with a little one and to watch their face light up when he can actually ask them what they want and sign. And it's such a, such a wonderful little moment where you're like, Christmas spirit. <laughs> it makes you so happy. It really does. It really does. Check this one out. Mike, did you know that Lux Radio Theater broadcast a 60-minute radio adaptation of the movie back in on December 22nd, 1947 with the original cast? And you can actually still listen to it. How fun is that? I love that. I love that. I know. This movie in 1947 was nominated for four Oscars, four Academy Awards, and won three of the four of them. It won for Best Actor in a Supporting Role, which was Emmett Gwen, who again played Chris Pringle. It won for Best Writing Original Story, which went to Valentine Davies. And it won for Best Writing Screenplay, which went to George Seaton. It was also nominated for Best Picture of the Year, but that actually lost that to gentleman's agreement interestingly george c is one of the few times that the nominee for best picture also wasn't a nominee for best director usually those things tend to go in hand in hand um and george seaton did not get nominated for best director but he did win an oscar for the screenplay he wrote so he still wins away walks away a winner in this that's amazing yeah did you know that john payne who is Fred, wrote a sequel that never got produced because he actually passed away before it got done. In that scene where Chris has, tells Susan to pull on his whiskers because she's she's uh, only had experience with fake spurious store Santas, he improvised, Edmund Gwen improvised his reaction that he gives her because he wanted to uh, surprise Natalie Wood. So he actually improvised his reaction in that scene so he would get an authentic reaction from her. Aww. So get this, you know, sometimes on sets, you know, you don't really know how the actors get along, but it turns out that Gwen, O'Hara and Payne would all hang out together on nights when they weren't filming. So they would go up and down Fifth Avenue and window shopped and like hung out together. How fun is that? I love that. I love that. I love that. The, everything I read from this and a lot of, again, does come from Maureen O'Hara's autobiography, but Natalie Wood's biographer also wrote about this, or Natalie Wood through her biographer wrote about this also, that the cast was really, really got along really well and that they all loved Edmund Gwen. They all came to think of him as Santa Claus in their own ways, but that it was a very... Uh, congenial uh, shoot that everyone was just kind of in the spirit. And honestly, watching this movie, watching the finished product, you can see how they're all enjoying their time. How it would be hard not to with such wonderful with, with with such a wonderful story to tell. My last fast fact is another Oscars one. There were two Christmas films actually nominated this year for Best Picture, Miracle on 34th Street, which we talked about. But there was another one called The Bishop's Wife, which also came out in 1947, which may or may not be on our list of 52 Weeks of Christmas uh, really? podcast, was also nominated for Best Picture in 1947. They make up only two of three movies, Christmas movies, that have ever been nominated for Best Picture. The third one being the year before, 1946, It's a Wonderful Life, which was our very first movie in this podcast. Aww. So the 1946, 1947, big year for Christmas movies. We need to start thinking about our jingle bells, Mike, but while I'm I'm calculating, can you hit me up with a clip for next week? Here's your clip for the movie we're covering next week. Where's my gun? I, uh, no, I, uh... Give me my gun. No, I, I, I got rid of it. 
can I say right off the bat before I even finish this clip? Christmas movies that start with <laughs> "Where's my gun?" as the clip. I mean, I, I think I think without warning, I could tell you this is one of the non-traditional Christmas movies. This okay. this is this is going to be a movie. That there's actually this is actually a pretty good clip, but um, which I'm going to play with you. But just as a little uh, a little warning. All right, hit us with it already. Where's my gun? I, uh, no, I, uh... Give me my gun. No, I, I, I got rid of it. Say again? Yeah, I threw it in the lake because I figured you wouldn't, I would. I got priors in New York, so I really can't, I can't be messing around. You with threw it. it away? Yeah, plus it's evidence. It's what? Watch it. Okay, relax. okay, oh, no, I'm sorry. I, I got a little nonplussed there. That's okay, cool. this is crazy. I understand. No, Just relax. Whoa, what is that? Is that a, is that a clue? What do you mean? Do you see that? In the thing? Can you... Ow! What were you thinking? My $2,000 ceramic vector my mother got me as a special gift? You threw in the lake next to the car. What happens when they drag the lake? You think they'll find my pistol? Jesus. Look up idiots in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No. The definition of the word idiot. I, I had to cut it off there because he actually goes on to say a very bad word and we don't have, uh, we keep this podcast uh, family friendly. But that, do you have a guess as what that movie may I be? I have absolutely no guess whatsoever. What is this one? That is 2005's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. It's a 2005 American black comedy crime film written and directed by Shane Black in his directorial debut. It stars Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer. Wow. Well, this will be fun. So we have to talk about whether or not this is an actual Christmas movie. This will be the first movie we're covering where it will be a real discussion about whether or not it should be considered a Christmas movie. This falls in the category of what I call the diehard category. Uh, Yes, this is our first entry in the quote unquote diehard category of quote unquote Christmas movies. All right, Caroline, have you had a chance to digest and consider to mull over how many Jingle Bells are you giving uh, 1947's Miracle on 34th Street? I believe I am going to give this one nine Jingle Bells, and I'm giving it nine Jingle Bells because I think that it has the spirit of Christmas all over the place. I love the emphasis on imagination and the permission for adults to continue to believe and the importance of adults to to spread that to kids and to make it be a safe thing to do and, and encourage it. So I, I feel like it's a beautiful, wonderful story at any time, but I think it's such a great movie to turn on on Thanksgiving Day and kick off the holidays. I think this is perfect. How about you, Mike? I'm also giving this nine Jingle Bells, which ties it for me with Elf. This is where I put Elf um, and slightly uh, and actually ties it for me for where I put Muppet Christmas Carol. So the the common theme for all three of those movies to me is that they really get to the heart of what Christmas is about. They really invoke the spirit of Christmas. Just the act of playing them. I feel like there is some kind of transitive property of Christmas into your life and Christmas joy into your life. Uh, I would actually rank this higher if I was ranking it just based on based on its quality as a Christmas movie. I actually think this is the perfect Christmas movie. Mm. It loses Jingle Bell points because as a regular movie that I enjoyed because I don't know. Well, I mean, because I, I enjoy movies in a popcorn sense, like Elf and Christmas and Muppet Christmas Carol more. I think this is a better Christmas movie. I think this is the best Christmas movie that we've actually covered so far. So I agree with you. This one's great. So next week, we're going to be covering Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which can be found where, Mike? Looks like as of right now, the best place to watch Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is to rent it on Prime Video for two ninety nine. It is, doesn't look like it's streaming anywhere for free. 
So if you want to watch along with us, we'll be watching that for our seventh week of the 52 weeks of Christmas. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to 52 Weeks of Christmas Podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could leave us five stars, that would be wonderful. And uh, that way we don't have to commit you to Bellevue. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.